Christ, the true and better everything. And that song sings it so well. It means so much. Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 14. And we'll begin in verse 13 today as we look at the the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And we'll talk about that in just a few moments. I, I appreciate Pastor Todd and others on the pastoral staff and giving me this opportunity. It's always a joy to be able to be with you and, and to bring the word to you on, on any given Sunday. And I just appreciate him sharing that opportunity with me from time to time. Somebody sent me a video this past week and I, from a pastor. I won't mention his name because it's not one I normally watch or would recommend necessarily. But he was talking about a church much like ours in that they had found the pastor from within and called the pastor. And because of that, the current pastor who was retiring was able to stay at the church. And he said, you know, that's the way it ought to be because it's kind of like having the father and the grandfather still there. So here's granddad today to uh, <laughs> talk to you a little bit and, and share the word with you, and uh, we will do that. Pray with me, would you? Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires are known, and from you, O oh Lord, no secrets are hid. Cleanse our thoughts, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may more perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen and amen. My son called me this past week and told me about a conversation that he had with my real granddaughter uh, looking at the uh, storybook picture Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones, and they had just kind of read some, and they were just kind of looking through it, some of the pictures, and they came upon the story about Jesus' baptism. And as they looked at that, Adeline said, Daddy, what's, what's that? What's he doing? Why is he in the water? And uh, Will said, well, Adeline, he's being, Jesus is being baptized there. And she said, why, why does he need to be baptized? Why is he getting baptized? My son explained to him that to her that uh, well he, he it was an example it was to show us what we're to do and how important it was, and she said, "Well, I didn't see him get baptized," and he said, "Well, no, no, others saw it and told others about it, and his apostles recorded it and wrote it down, and now we have it in the Bible to understand it." And she said, "Well, does Jesus is that what Jesus looks like? Now, if you've seen that picture or not, it's rather cartoonish." And Will said, well, it, it sort of is. It's kind of like, you know, he, he had darker skin and probably had a beard and his hair was a little longer. And, and yeah, that's probably similar to what he looked like. And she said, well, what does God look like? And he said, well, God is a spirit. And, and so we don't really see God in, in, in reality. He's, he's a spirit. We see God in Jesus Christ. To which she broke into the last line of the doxology, praise God for Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Ah, girls learning. Well, I tell you that because what we have here is something that we have not seen with our eyes. The feeding of 5,000 people with 
five little loaves of bread and two little fishes, and, and it's, it comes across in some ways as just kind of fantastical, doesn't it? I mean, that's, that's kind of, who, who can comprehend that, that somehow Jesus had 5,000 men there and realized probably it was more like fifteen to 20,000 people there because they only counted the men. Men and women and children probably came to a much larger number than 5,000, but 5,000 would be a pretty big uh, amount for us to even try to get our heads around. But, but Jesus looks at them and he feeds them with such a meager amount of food it would seem. Now, we live in a day of what we might call deconstructionism of many people with Christianity. And, and they start deconstructing their faith, faith that they maybe have had since a childhood, brought up in a Christian home, and they start kind of working to take it apart. When they do that, they always start at the miracles. And it's really nothing new. One of our founding fathers of this country was a great deconstructionist. He was great with the Constitution and Declaration of Independence, but Thomas Jefferson was horrible with the New Testament. He looked at the New Testament and said, man, I like Jesus. I love all this stuff about Jesus. I like that he was a great teacher, and I like that he, he, he did all these things of teaching about great moral truths, but, but quite honestly, I just can't buy the miracles. And so Jefferson took his time, and, and he deconstructed the New Testament, wrote his own Bible that had no miracles in it, just had the moral teachings of Jesus. That happens a lot. Pastor Todd touched on that just a little bit last week when he said, we live in a day of you know, what, what we might call naturalism. We live in a day where people say, hey, just believe the science. If, if the science doesn't say it's possible, then don't believe it. Let me tell you something. There's a lot more to the world and a lot more to our, our universe and a lot more to our existence than what science can tell us. As a matter of fact, science can only observe what has already taken place. Uh, I love what Fritz, uh, Fritz Schaefer, the quantum uh, chemist at, at the University of Georgia says, he says, the great joy of his job as a scientist is being able to do research and discover new things, and as he discovers them, to be able to say, oh, so that's how God did it. Because that's what science ought to really be doing, is discovering how God brought about the creation. And so when we look at things like the feeding of the 5,000, or we might call it the 15,000 or the 20,000, when we look at a miracle like that, we kind of scratch our heads because we say, well, that just doesn't fit into a naturalistic viewpoint of, of life and a naturalistic viewpoint of existence. And so people have tried to take this miracle and have tried to explain it away, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But I want to read it first. I want you to hear this because it's a fascinating story. And it's the only miracle of Jesus that is mentioned in all four Gospels. I think that's significant. We'll talk about it in a minute. This is what Matthew records. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. When he had heard what? Well, Pastor Todd talked about that last week as he dealt with, with those first verses in chapter 14 and the, the first uh, 12 verses there. And, but really what he's talking about is what is in verses 1 and 2. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch, which is a, a, literally means Herod who ruled a quarter of the country, really, heard about the fame of Jesus and said to his service, servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That, those, that is why those, these miraculous powers are at work within him. And then Matthew kind of gives a parenthetical note and tells about how Herod had 
John the Baptist beheaded. It wouldn't make sense for him to say, oh, this is John the Baptist resurrected, and then go out and kill John the Baptist, okay? And, and, and Pastor Todd very clearly said, Matthew is not so concerned with chronology as he is with absolute truth. He's not so concerned with, with saying, oh, it happened this way, and then this way, and then this way, and, and then uh, he just wants you to see the truth of what he's talking about in the miracles of Jesus. If you go to those other, the other Gospels and read the, the passages about the feeding of the 5,000, you'll find more detail in some of them. You'll find in Mark that they sat down on a grassy knoll up on the side of a mountain and, and they sat in the grass and, they, and you'll find from Luke that he divided them, had the disciples divide them in groups of 50 and groups of 100. And so they were separated out in groups for this miracle to take place. Mark, Matthew doesn't care about all that. He just wants to get to the heart of it and say, this is what took place in that day. And so Jesus withdrew. He got in a boat, and he went to a desolate place, but when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. Now, they didn't follow him on foot with the boat. They went around the shore, they, they rushed around the shore, and they were so quick to figure out where he was going that they arrived there, many of them, before he even got there. They followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore... And saw a great, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. Now can you imagine what the disciples thought when he said, Oh, they don't have to go. You just give them something to eat. Well, they thought about that for a moment. And they said to him, well, we only have five loaves here and two fish. Now, we know from, from Mark's gospel and, and Luke that, that those two, two fish and five loaves had come from a little boy who was in the crowd who happened to have his lunch packed with him. And so he said, bring that to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing. And then he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. That's a significant statement to this. And, and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who were there were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So what we see here is a really phenomenal miracle taking place. There's no other way to describe it except it is the miraculous God who is sovereign over all creation, who is the one who John said was there in the beginning and all things were made by him, and apart from him was not anything made that was made. Here is the creator God incarnate on earth who can do just as much miracles now as he did at the beginning when he said, let there be light, and there was light, and he, when he separated the waters and the land, and when he created the animals and ultimately created man. This, this Jesus, who is God incarnate, is not limited by anything that we would see as a limitation. But many have said, oh, that, that can't be. I mean, so you take the, the Jesus seminar, for instance, and their evaluation of this when they 
did their little voting with the balls and the marbles to see what could be left in and what really Jesus said. And they said this was not acceptable, but what really probably happened was, it, it talks about being a desolate place. There are mountains all around the northeastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and that's probably where he was. And so he was probably backed up to a cave, and as he taught the people and healed the people, he stood behind the cave and had his robe flowing, and somewhere behind him was a cave. And in that cave, they had put all these supplies, and, and as he just talked to them, the disciples just sort of eased the supplies out and handed them to him, and he handed it out, and, and it looked like this was just being multiplied over and over, but there was really food in that cave. None of the apostles give any indication in any of the gospels that anything like that was happening. Some thought, well, there must be some kind of a Houdini trick, you know, or, or, a, or a David Copperfield. He, he, he somehow had this magical power where he could just uh, produce these things out of nothing. Well, it, it was being produced out of nothing, but it was not magic. It was not sorcery. It was literally the God of creation creating it. Others have said, like William Barclay in his commentary on Matthew, said, well, what, really, what the miracle was here really was not that five loaves and, and two fish fed everybody. But what really happened here was that when those people saw that young boy come forward in such a humble way and say, here is my food. I got two fish. I got five loaves. That's all I got. But I'm willing to share it if that'll help at all. That they who had been hiding their lunches for fear they would have to share it just had this gush of sentimentality and this gush of generosity and said, oh, well, you know, we happen to have a little bit here and we can share it here and and they shared their lunches, and all of a sudden, everybody shared, and everybody was fed. There would still be a limit to that. I like how Matthew puts it in verse 20. He says, and they all ate, and they were satisfied. The, the word that's used there for satisfied is an interesting word in the Greek, and I, I don't go into a lot of detail on that with you today, but I will just tell you this. The word that's used there literally means they were stuffed. They ate all they wanted and then some. They had food literally coming out of their ears, if, if that's what would have been a possibility. But people want to deny it because we live in an, an age of naturalism, which says if it can't be explained in a logical, human-sensical way, if it can't be explained in a way that really suits our presuppositions, then it really can't be true. But this is a significant miracle. It's a significant miracle for several reasons. One, I've already mentioned a little bit, is it's, it's mentioned and recorded by all four gospel writers. It's also significant because there were more individuals involved than any other miracle. Think about the other miracles of Jesus. How many people were typically involved in them? Usually one. He healed a blind man. That was one man. He, he healed a crippled man by the, by the pool and said, take up your bed and walk. And he got up and walked, but it was one man. So, so here we have Jesus not dealing with just one. He'd already done some miracles, it said. He healed their sick individually there. But now he corporate with the whole body. He says, here is what I'm going to do. I'm going to feed you with a meager five loaves and two fish. And, and this wasn't a loaf of Sara Lee bread, okay? It wasn't a, a, a packed full big loaf. This was more probably like a, a little dinner roll you might have is what those would have been. And he took those and he began to feed 15 to 20,000 people. It's also the only miracle we see in any of the Gospels where someone contributed something to the action involved. 
Typically, it's just Jesus speaking the words. You do this. Get up and walk. Look and see. You know, there, there's, there's never any time when someone actually contributes something that the miracle might take place. And yet here is, is Jesus taking from this young boy what he has and giving it to the others. John tells us it's also the only time in the, in the life and ministry of Jesus where a miracle is performed and there's an attempt by the Israelite crowd to crown him as king. See more about that in a minute. We'll look at John in a minute. But they, he, they, they want to make him king. Here he's feeding the 5,000. So let's make him king of Israel and run Herod and all the, the Romans out of the country. It's also the only miracle where Jesus asked the disciples some questions. Where shall we buy bread for all these people to eat in John 6, 5? Or, or how many loaves do you have? Mark 6, 38, he asked them questions. Generally, it's them asking him questions, you know, like with a blind man. What did this man do to be blind? Was it his sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus said, it wasn't either one of them. It was for the glory of God. And here Jesus is about to show the magnificent glory of God all over again, and yet he does it by beginning talking to his disciples with this multitude around and asking them questions. There's significance to that. It's the only miracle where he asked his disciples to serve him. Bring me the five loaves and two fishes. You go out and have the people sit down in, in, so, in one of the gospels, in 50 or 100 groups. Have them sit down together and you're about to see the glory of God. I mean, this miracle, while all the miracles of Jesus are significant, and every single one of them has a purpose, John actually calls them signs in his gospel. Every miracle that's done, John's built around seven signs, as we looked at about ten years ago as we went through the gospel of John. Every single sign is significant because every single sign is pointing to who he is. It's pointing to his character. It's pointing to his person. It's pointing to who Jesus Christ really is. In Jesus' day, many were ready to say he was a great prophet. Many were willing to say he's a great teacher. In our day, many are willing to say he's a prophet in Islam or any other, uh, any other number of religions. Many are willing to say, oh, his moral teachings are superb and beyond anything we could ever imagine. But they're not willing to see what the miracles are demanding that we see. And that is Jesus is God incarnate, the son of the living God, come to dwell among us. And to save his people from their sins. That's what the miracles teach us. That's what they point to. But they teach us even more about who he is. Jesus is in many ways fulfilling prophecies from, from the prophets, especially Ezekiel, concerning the ministry of the promised good shepherd. John develops that a little bit more than, than Matthew does, especially in, in John chapter 10 where Jesus, John shows how Jesus teaches that I'm the good shepherd and I care for my sheep and I lay down my life for my sheep. But in this particular passage, he's, he's, not, he's not teaching, not describing it, but he's demonstrating it. Ezekiel said this in Ezekiel 34, 11 through 14. He says, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I... I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. 
And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries. And I will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and and in all inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. And they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture. And and they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. Of Israel. Ezekiel saying this is what Messiah will do. He will care for his people in such a such an intimate shepherd-like way that he will provide their needs. He will provide food for them. What's happening in the, in the miracle here? He's providing food for the people that are there. He's saying, I will, I will prepare for my people to be fed and cared for and, and watched over. That's, that's why I chose uh, Psalm 111 for our reading, for our meditation this morning. It's talking about the covenant God who keeps his promises and keeps his covenant. And a big part of that covenant is caring and feeding his people. And that's exactly what Jesus is showing here. He's showing that he is a sensitive shepherd, one who sees the needs of people in every kind of group. And understand, in that group there, those were not all 5,000 or even 20,000 people who said, oh, this is the Messiah, this is the King of Israel, this is the one that we worship, this is the one who is God made flesh to dwell among us. They didn't all see that. They came for a multitude of reasons. It's kind of like the Apostle Paul when he was at Mars Hill in in Acts chapter 17 and after he had preached the resurrection of Christ and and declared that before the people. It says all those people that heard him, well, some of them just disbelieved immediately and said, we'll have nothing of this. Some of them said, well, hmm, come back again and we'll hear you again. This is, this is intriguing. Maybe, maybe we need to give you another hearing and we'll still think about it. And others followed and believed. This crowd of 5,000 men plus women and children was a crowd of people that was an absolutely mixed multitude, just like our country is and just like many of our churches are. It was a mixed multitude of those who said, I can't buy that, I can't believe that, who say, well, maybe I'll consider that, and others who say, yes, Lord Jesus, I believe you, I trust you, I bow down before you. It's exactly what's taking place in these things. So as they go aside... Uh, Jesus says, or, or Matthew tells us, he said, okay, the crowds have been pressing upon them. They've heard that, that Herod is now saying, oh, this must be John the Baptist resurrected. And you know what I did to the first John the Baptist? I'm going to have to do something about him. And so not out of fear, because he knew his time, and he wasn't worried about Herod being able to take his life, because Herod had no power to do that. But just pulling away, not to have a con- confrontation at that point with Herod, he went aside to take his disciples for some rest. One of the Gospels tells us that this also happened right after he had sent the apostles, sent the disciples out to preach and proclaim the, the kingdom of God. And they've just come back and, and now they're tired and they're exhausted, maybe close to what our generation would call burnout. And so, so he says, let's just go and go aside and be quiet and rest. As a sensitive shepherd, he knew the needs of the twelve. He knew the needs of those disciples who had come with him. And Mark even goes a little further. He says, he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. 
For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away into the, in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. The disciples needed rest. They just learned of John's martyrdom, perhaps. They, they knew what was happening. They didn't know what lie ahead. And no matter how much Jesus tried to prepare them for his crucifixion, they just weren't ready for that. So they needed rest. He also knew the needs of the crowd. He took his disciples away to rest. Didn't get much, it doesn't look like, because the crowds swarmed up to where he was and surrounded him. And, and, and Mark says, when they went ashore, they saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. Just what Ezekiel had been talking about. Matthew says the crowd was there. He went ashore and he saw a great crowd. And when he did, he saw the needs of the crowd. There were some who needed healing, and Matthew says he healed them, those who were sick. Uh, some needed just to rest themselves, and he had them sit down, and he had them rest at that place. But he also saw that they needed to be ta taught, and so he began teaching them many things, Mark 6 tells us. They needed to be taught. Hosea the prophet had made it very clear that my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, for lack of teaching, for lack of understanding the things of God and the ways of God. And so he, he, he wanted to counteract that. And so he invested a great amount of time with these people, but also in all of his ministry, in teaching those who were around. He never shied away from teaching, although that was not his primary purpose. All through the Gospels, not necessarily in this particular miracle in the Gospels, but in, in the Gospels in Matthew 4, 5, and 7, and Mark 1, and in John 6, 7, and 28 even, it, it, says, it says that the, 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 the people that heard him says they were astonished at his doctrine. You know, we, we kind of get this picture of Jesus who just kind of when he teaches, he just says, now, be nice, be kind, love one another, don't judge one another, don't, don't call out sin, just, just be nice to one another. But evidently, what they saw in that day was that they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority and not as their own scribes were. It's because he did have authority. He says at the end of Matthew, when he's about to depart and ascend into heaven, he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. And that authority, I'm commissioning you to go into all the world and share the, the good news of the kingdom of God and share the good news of the gospel. Go, because I have the authority to send you. And everything he said... And everything he did was based on that particular need of the people. He taught doctrine. He taught about the glory of God. He talked about the power of God. He, he talked about what it would take for one to come to faith and to know what it would mean to spend eternity with God in heaven. He taught as one had authority. They also needed to be healed, and so he healed them. Any of those that needed it said he healed, he healed their sick because he had compassion on them. And they needed to be fed. And this shepherd 
was ready to lead them beside green, in green pastures, beside still waters, and provide for them even when the provision looked impossible. I mean, let's face it, five loaves, two fish? How in the world are you going to feed all these people? I know it wasn't quite the same magnitude, but Mike, as you were sharing testimony about what took place with losing your equipment and losing everything, yeah, you didn't have anything to work with that you're used to working with. And yet God took your lack with his grace and made something beautiful come out of it. Right? Because he is a compassionate, sensitive shepherd to the needs of his people. But he's also a sovereign shepherd. It's not just that he is a nice guy, although he is. It's not just that he was sensitive to their needs, though he was. But he was also a sovereign shepherd. He who created everything that there is had no power, no problem having the power to multiply two fish and five little loaves of bread. That was not an issue with him because of who he was. Mark says he took the five loaves and two fish. He looked up to heaven. He said, a blessing. Thank you, Father. And he broke the loaves and he gave it to the disciples and it set it before the people. And he divided the two fish among them, and they all ate and were all filled. Or Matthew says they were all satisfied, filled up. And 12 baskets were collected after the feeding of them. What, a, what an amazing miracle to watch. The sovereign of all creation doing this right before their eyes. And, you know, it's kind of interesting because a lot of people want to say, well, this was... This is sort of a foreshadowing of what we did here this morning, the, the Lord's Supper, communion, you know, because it says he took the bread, he lifted it up, he thanked God for it, he broke it, and then he passed it among them. And we did that this morning with, with both the, the bread and with the juice of the cup, and we passed it among the people. But, but, but there was no fish involved this morning that I remember, and there was no wine involved on the day that he did this with the 5,000. So while you might get some kind of little shadowy thing there, that's not the purpose of why he did this. He's showing his sovereign, glorious power to all who would see and all who would listen. He was a sovereign shepherd. He was also a shepherd that was sufficient for the call. If you think about what you've just been studying, if you've been in our Sunday school, adult Sunday school classes, you've just studied Colossians chapter 1. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul's greatest desire there is for you and me to see and understand that we serve a, a Savior and, and a Redeemer who is absolutely sufficient for our every need. Didn't we? And, and here in this miracle, he's showing that he is a sufficient shepherd in the midst of all this. It's, John tells us, John 6 says, when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. And they gathered them, and all of them, the, the fragments of the barley loaves and the fish, and there was 12 baskets left over. I wouldn't even look for a whole lot of symbolism in the, in the 12 baskets. I guess just each disciple had a basket, and they gathered it up, and there were 12 of them when it was all over with. But he fed them. 
They were stuffed. They got all that they wanted, more than they needed, and there was food left over after that. You know, Jesus looked out at the crowd and, and fed them, and, and as they left, he, there was a note of sorrow. I, I, and you have to see this because at the end of this fantastic miracle, they're rightly recognizing him as a prophet, and John tells us in his gospel that they tried to make him a king at that point. That they just had their, their motive was wrong and their method was wrong as they came to this. Jesus pointed this out in the in a sermon the following day, according to John. After the people had eaten, they were evidently some still milling around, maybe all of them were still around, and he began to talk to them about the bread of life. It's amazing how John always ties in a miracle with the teaching. And and after feeding 5,000 with this bread and fish, he says, and I am the bread of life. And if you come to me and you believe in me and trust in me, you'll never hunger again, spiritually speaking. I am the bread that gives true life. John says in, in John 6, 26, he said, Jesus answered them because of their motives being wrong. He said, truly I say to you, you are seeking me. But but you're not seeking me because of the signs that you saw, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You're you're seeking me because you're waiting on your next meal. You're you're wanting to say, okay, Lord, what are we going to eat today? What's on the menu for today? And Jesus said, the sign was to point you to a deeper and a greater truth. You want to be filled again. Do not labor for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. He's the bread of life. He's the one that can give life, that is satisfying and complete. And not only was their motive wrong there, but their method was wrong. Jesus didn't come to be crowned king by a sinful people. He didn't come to be set up some kind of an earthly uh, a place where he could rule over the Romans and, and, and maybe drive them out. Sinful people could not establish his throne. The Father alone will someday give the Son his rightful kingdom. John talks about that in Revelation, in Revelation 11, where it says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for the destroying, the destroyers of the earth, you will reign supreme. I mean, we have to see 
that Jesus taking this miracle of five loaves and two fish and all these people, these multitudes gathered around, and he's not just saying, here, fill your bellies and enjoy a meal here. Enjoy a time of, of good fellowship around some food. He's not saying that at all. He's saying, understand, there is something bigger taking place here. There's something more important taking place here, and you must see it. There have been a lot of reasons suggested as to why this miracle was performed. I mean, obviously, to show his compassion upon the people. He was concerned about their physical needs because he knew that through their physical needs, some would have their spiritual needs met, their soul needs met. And so he was caring for them. He was showing his compassion. Not only that, there was something of a test, if you will, or a faith-building test for the disciples. This undoubtedly strengthened their faith. They would remember this all their lives. I mean, can you imagine Jesus saying, okay, we've got 5,000 men here and all these women and kids. Go give them something to eat. And them saying, whoa, we can't do that. He said, no, you can't. But I can. John 6, he shows that it was to prove his messianic claims, that he was the Messiah, he was the Savior. The, The Jews had a tradition that when Messiah did come, the one thing he was going to do was he was going to do just what Moses did in the wilderness. He was going to provide manna. And and so they could see this and say, well, here's the manna. The manna has come. We'll never have to work again. We'll just eat the manna of the Messiah. But when he got down to it, Jesus said, our fathers did eat manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Uh, Then Jesus said to them, that was the people saying, our fathers gave us manna in the desert. And Jesus said to them, verily, verily, I say to you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger, and he that believes on me shall never thirst. There's the significance of the, of the 5,000 being fed. It was showing that he is Messiah. He is king. He is Lord over all things. I think by way of an application, too, and I kind of go back to Mike's testimony on this, it's to show the value of small things when they're given over to Christ. You say, well, I'm not a a fabulous speaker. I'm not a great teacher. I'm not not this. I'm not that. I'm I'm just little in the kingdom. I don't have a whole lot. Well, that's all right because it's not up to you. It's not you that's to be at work. As a matter of fact, sometimes when you decide you can do something, you get in the way of what God really wants to do. But if you say, Lord, I don't have much. Lord, Lord I'm weak. I'm, I don't have a lot. I don't have anything more than two fish and, and a few little barley loaves. I, I don't have anything. And Jesus says, that's all right. You give that little thing to me. And I'll show you how I can work it out for the glory of God. I'll show you how I can make something little really big. I'll show you how I can make something that you think is insignificant and nobody cares about. And I can use that, not for your glory, not for your praise, but I can use it for the glory of God. 
But finally, I think it was done to prove what, math, what uh, Psalm 111 talked about. It was strictly to illustrate God's faithfulness. In fact, this miracle is just an unforgettable illustration of a profound principle that Jesus had previously taught in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember what he said in, in Matthew chapter 6 as Pastor Todd preached through the Sermon on the Mount? He said, therefore take no thought saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or, or what shall we wear clothing-wise? But seek first the kingdom of God and seek his righteousness first and all these things, all these things will be added to you. We're not to seek the things. We're not to seek to try to do something for God. We're to seek him and his righteousness and his kingdom and his glory. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and he will provide. That's what the psalmist said. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He does not forget his people. And that's the truth of what God wants us to see this morning, folks. He wants to see that he is a faithful God. He is a righteous God. And his faithfulness endures to every day of our life. If we're his, if we have been cleansed by his blood through the cross, if we belong to him, have been adopted into his family, and we rightly call God Father? He is faithful. He was faithful in Africa when stuff that was going to do the work was confiscated. He still used it to bring 280-something people to faith in Christ. That's better than pulling teeth. It really is. You say, but man, my life's tough. I, I pray and I pray and I ask for this to be removed or that to be removed. I ask for something to happen here. And I pray it over and over and over again. And, and you know what? God doesn't answer that. He hasn't answered that. He hasn't taken it away. That's all right. I still want you to know he's faithful and he will take care of that if you're his. Because he loves his children. He loves his family. He loved them so much he gave his life for you. That's kind of shepherd he is. He, he didn't just drive the wolves off. He laid down before the wolves and died that you might live. That you might partake not just of bread that is pointing to the bread of life, but that you might have the bread of life. Jesus himself. In that first chapter of Colossians that y'all have been studying, Paul talks a lot about mystery. The mystery. The mystery. You know what that mystery is? I hope you got it this morning. That mystery is Jesus himself and the gospel message. Yeah, it was hidden for ages past, but now it has been revealed, it has been unfolded, and now it is before you. This was a feast on that mountainside. But it is nothing like the feast 
that our Lord is preparing for us who know him. Where every tear will be dried, every disease will be healed, every problem will be solved. Maybe not right now in this world, but when we see him face to face. John and Matthew and Mark and Luke all want you to see in this beautiful, beautiful miracle that it's not magic, it's not sorcery, it's not sleight of hand, it's not just people saying, oh, well, that boy embarrassed me, so I better break out my food. It's the sovereign God of all creation showing his glory by being a good shepherd. Pray with me, would you? Father, we thank you so much for showing us the multifaceted view of this miracle from four different witnesses. Now, some would want to say that because they don't agree that they must not be true. But, Lord, to me, that gives it more truth because they didn't, they didn't concoct a story and say, okay, now we've got to say this and this and this. They just told what they saw and what they thought was important in it. But every one of them saw the importance of pointing to your glory and your sufficiency and your power. Father, I pray for men and women this morning in this room or or watching on the live stream who do not know you. I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would move in their lives right now and draw them to the bread of life, that they might feast upon you, that you might move them out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your glorious light. I pray for others, Lord, whose faith is weak, he said, man, I wish I could see him feed 5,000 people. Then I would believe, folks, we, Lord, we see it. And you're absolutely true word. Help us see it more than just reading it with our eyes and hearing it with our ears. Help us, Lord, believe it with our heart. And strengthen our faith, as you no doubt did the disciples. Father, we thank you for it this day. We ask you to do your work for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.